All right, well, let's move into our teaching for this morning. We'll be considering Easter and what that means for us today. And so today we're going to be looking at, um, looking at the resurrection from 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. So if you have your Bible with you, you can open it up to, to the book of 1 Peter. We're going to be in 1 Peter today in chapter 1. I'm going to read a few verses from there, and then we will move forward into our teaching. So I'll just give you a few moments to turn there in your Bibles if you're going to be reading along in your Bible. Uh, or you can also read on the screens next to me. We'll have the text there. I believe we will. Do we have the Bible? Yes. Okay. We are still in the process of changing computers back there, and so it's caused a lot of havoc. Uh, but Alex is holding it down, doing a great job. So, uh, all right. So First Peter chapter 1. We'll be starting in verse 3. I'm going to read through verse 9. So in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which, though perishable, is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him, and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy, because you're receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So happy Easter, y'all. Today we celebrate not only flowers and bunnies and chocolates and donuts and, uh, and, uh, and those little puffy things that taste like uh, uh, puffs, right? Those little, those little puffs that peeps peeps uh, that you love whenever you're a kid and then you grow up and you realize it tastes like packing foam with sugar on top of it, right? Today, we celebrate not only all those things, and, and I don't think there's anything wrong celebrating those things. Uh, you guys, if you've been around here for a while, you know that, that I love our, our holidays, and I, I even love all the stuff that comes along with it, and I think it's great. We should celebrate all of it and, and enjoy all of it, but what we really are, uh, we must keep at the center, and we must remember as we celebrate, along with all of our other, uh, you know, family get-togethers and, and, you know, all you Cajuns are going to be pocketing eggs today, what we need to remember at, beneath all of our family traditions and so on is that what we are celebrating today is truly what is the foundation of our faith. There is, the, the gospel is simple, and yet there is just endless complexities and mysteries and and, and, and beauty to be explored in the Christian faith. It's one of the most amazing things about it. The gospel can be uh, communicated and grasped by a child, and yet uh, men and women can then, intelligent men and women can spend decades of their lives trying to unpack it, and yet there's still more to be discovered. And yet in all of these, those complexities and mysteries and nuances and, and things that we can spend decades learning about and listening to sermons on and so on, in spite of them all, what is the most crucial, that one that 
that one piece that if you were to pull it out, it all falls apart. You know, like, like the Jenga tower. And you, you keep pulling out pieces until you find the one that finally makes the thing collapse. What we celebrate today is that piece. It's the cornerstone. It is the foundation. The resurrection is the cornerstone of the Christian faith. Without the resurrection, our entire belief and practice and everything else falls apart. Paul himself said this in 1 Corinthians 15. He begins 1 Corinthians 15 by telling them that I passed on to you what was given to me as of first importance. All right, so number one, he says this is it. And he, he tells them uh, the gospel in the form of a creed or a hymn that had been taught to him. And then later on in 1 Corinthians 15, as he continues to unpack the resurrection, because that's what the creed uh, leads up to, that's the pinnacle of it, he says very explicitly, he says, if Jesus was not raised from the dead, he says, your faith is in vain. He says, it's all a waste, it doesn't matter. We're wasting our time. He says, we, uh, more than any other people, are to be pitied if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. Paul didn't say that about anything else in the Christian faith except the resurrection. The resurrection is the core. Like I said, it, this event is what all of our belief and practice and so on hinges upon. So it's important. It's important that we grasp it and that we, that we grasp both the beautiful simplicity of it and the rich nuance that comes with it, which is why we celebrate it every year. We talk about it so much. And today I want to take a little bit of a different approach in, uh, in going through the resurrection story and, and bringing out what I want us to see from this passage. I want to try to talk about the resurrection. Um, I want to talk about the Christian story as a three-act play where the resurrection is the event that holds it all together. So that's what I'm going to attempt to do today. We're going to talk about the story, the, the Christian story, the gospel, as a three-act play, as a tragedy, a comedy, and a fairy tale, and how the resurrection is what holds all of those pieces together. Let's see if I can do it. So we begin with tragedy. This isn't my original idea. This actually comes from, there was a theologian uh, in the uh, early and mid-20th century named Frederick Buchner, and he wrote a book called Telling the Truth, uh, which, was on, uh, which was on the gospel. And in this book, he described the gospel as a three-act play, uh, as a way of understanding the gospel as a three-act play that begins as a tragedy, a comedy, and then ends as a fairy tale. And so I'm borrowing from that idea in, in doing this today. The first act in the gospel story, according to Buchner, is a tragedy. The tragedy is the backdrop for what we typically think of as the gospel, right? The, event, the events of Jesus' life that bring about salvation. But the first act of the story, the, the tragedy, like I said, it's the backdrop. And it's the context for the gospel that we must understand well, that we need to get, because without it, the gospel doesn't make sense. Without the backdrop of the tragedy, the gospel doesn't make sense. Uh, it, it, it isn't relevant, and it isn't urgent to our lives at all. So we have to begin with the first act of the Christian story, the tragedy. And the tragedy is this. The tragedy is man's fall away from God the Father. The tragedy in the Christian story, the first act of the play, is man's fall away from God the Father. Because when we begin reading the Christian story and the gospel, it tells us that the world that we live in and that we as human beings, as men and women, were created by a loving God, a loving Father 
who created us in joy. He created us in joy. He, he made the world and he formed it out, out of and as expressions of his love and his joy for us and that he had in, in creating this world like a, uh, like a, like, like, like a grand canvas. As, a, as an artist approaches a canvas and in, out of inspiration and joy, the artist paints a great picture upon the canvas to express that joy and inspiration. So God the Father approached creating the world as this canvas that he made his beautiful creation upon. But he was not satisfied in just making a beautiful creation with mountains and streams and, uh, and oceans and so on, but he wanted to create uh, a people made in his own image. Now, there's a lot of discussion on what that means, but for our purposes today, let's just focus on one aspect that we know that it means, a people that he can have relationship with. A people he can have relationship with. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. And so he makes mankind, it says, in his own image. So he creates this world, this perfect home that is beautiful and that is flourishing with everything that humanity needs. And then he places humanity in the garden, right, in this, in this perfect sanctuary where he and man can live in harmony and in loving union with one another. Like I said, God does this as expressions overflowing from the infinite love and joy that he has as gifts for mankind. But you know the story. You know what happens. Adam and Eve chose to not listen to God and obey him. They chose to not return the love to God that God had shown to them in creating them and in giving them this perfect world with everything they needed and having a, uh, a relationship of unity and harmony with him. They didn't return the love back to the Father by obeying his one rule to not eat from the, that one tree, right? But instead, they chose to obey themselves. Therefore, they rebelled against God. Whenever they chose to obey themselves over God's word to them, they ate the fruit of the tree, and we have what we call in, in Christianity the fall. The fall, the first time that mankind rebelled against God, disobeyed God, and therefore sin enters the world. That's what sin is, to rebel against God, to disobey him. So sin enters the world, and with sin comes a brokenness that had not uh, been in the world before. Before this, there was no death. There was no suffering, right? There was no, uh, there was no conflict between men. There was no separation between man and God. But with sin, because sin is, uh, even in the simple act of eating the fruit, because rebellion against God is so serious and evil, it brings all this brokenness. You can think of it as if God's creation was this, this beautiful garment, that he had made. Sin brings ruptures in the garment. It destroys the fabric of the creation, which is why we see the fallenness of the world that we live in today. Why we live in a world surrounded by pain and suffering that we both witness outside of ourselves and that we experience within ourselves. And yet something deep within us cries out, this is not right. Now, if we are just the products of pure chance and randomness, and there is no Christian story, and there is no God, why would we say the world shouldn't be this way? If there is no God, and the world just came about like this, by pure chance and accident, and we are just walking sacks of meat, 
in this meaningless universe, then why would there be something within us, universally as people, that responds to the pains of life, the sufferings of life, the, the injustices that we see in the world, and we say it's not supposed to be this way. This um, sentiment that we call lament. Why else would we lament? It's because, guys, deep within the DNA of your soul, the Christian story is still there. Because whether you, you receive it or not, you're still made by God in his image, in his world. And this tragedy is still, uh, is still there. It's, like I said, it's written into the DNA of your soul, which is why you respond to the pains and the sufferings and the brokenness that we see and recognize within you, this is not right. Because of the tragedy, the fall. Adam and Eve chose their own way, and they fell, they fall away from God, the Father, responding to his love and joy with rebellion, and so in comes sin, death, and suffering. But the tragedy is not just what happened. The tragedy continues today. As we continue to choose our own way and continue to live out rebellion against God by obeying ourselves and by uh, uh, listening to our own words over the words of God, we continue the rebellion and the tragedy today. We just finished a, a short series called Surrender, where every single week I was calling us to surrender the rebellion, to surrender the things that we hold to, on to, to surrender uh, the, the ways that we obey ourselves other than God, and to, sur- to lay those things down before the, the Lord, right? To turn away from our rebellion. The tragedy and the rebellion continues even into today. We are not just the victims of something that our ancestors done, but we are participants. You see, so it's not just that we look around and say, it is not right. We must also look inside of ourselves and say, this is not right. Our rebellion against the Father, our selfishness and our pride, our, our envy, the wicked thoughts and feelings that we harbor, we continue and we perpetuate the tragedy by choosing our way over God every day. A part of the Christian story in the gospel is that Jesus was betrayed by one of his disciples, Judas. You might remember the story. He was betrayed by Judas. Judas handed him over in exchange for 30 pieces of silver. We often look at that part of the story and we say, my goodness, how could he do that? How could he betray? He he had lived with Jesus for years. He had uh, been a friend to Jesus. Jesus had been so good to him, and he betrays him for 30 pieces of silver. What is that worth compared to Jesus? We look at that, and it boggles the mind, and we, we don't realize that we sell out Jesus every day for less. We are a part of the tragedy. We raise rebellion against God with our sins, and for our rebellion, the sentence is death. This is the first act of the play, the tragedy, that God, who had intended to live in perfect harmony and union and in love and joy with his humanity, now humanity deserves death for our choosing to rebel against him and to sin against him. This is the tragedy. So what is to happen? What are we to do? Well, here's where we move into the second act of the play, the comedy. Now, what do we mean by comedy here? I'm not talking about what we often think of when we consider comedy today. I'm not talking about the slapstick, the surrealist, 
or the, or the irreverent, as we often think of, like I said, and, and what is presented to us as comedies today. I'm speaking more of high comedy. I'm speaking of comedy more in a classical sense. What I mean by that is a story where there are, there are problems and there are breakdowns and there are obstacles, and it seems as though everything is heading towards tragedy, but at the last minute there is a turn and a happy ending. And this happy ending that comes usually comes about uh, unexpectedly. It's a surprise the way that the happy ending came. It was unexpected. And that's what I mean by a comedy. And in this sense, the Christian story, the gospel, absolutely fits this definition well. Let me give you this point. The comedy is God the Son's incarnation as man, his substitutionary death for our sin, and resurrection from the grave. So we have the tragedy, God's creation of the world, the enemy's corruption, mankind's rebellion, and so therefore the fall, and all that comes with the fall, right? The, the, the sin, the, tra- uh, the, the suffering, death, and so on. Everything looks terrible. It looks as though God's creation is now just subject to his eventual wrath and destruction. What's going to happen, right? How can mankind be saved? Because God cannot just overlook sin. If he were to just overlook sin, if he were to just overlook rebellion, think of a, of a king who has outright rebellion brought against him uh, by the people. And they, they burn down buildings. They burn down the castle. They, they slay their neighbors. And the king just says, ah, don't worry about it. The king just says, ah, forget about it. Right? That would not be a good king. He would not be just. And so neither would God the Father be just to just say, look at our sin and say, ah, don't worry about it, right? So how can he both be just, executing justice for sin, and yet also not destroy us, not have the story end in tragedy? Who could have guessed it? Who could have guessed it? God became man. See, what I mean by the, the unexpected turn that brings about a happy ending. God became man. No one was expecting that. The Jews were not expecting for this to happen. When they were looking, everything that they knew and conceived of about the Messiah that was to come and God's eventual salvation, God's eventual establishment of his kingdom on earth and, and, and his defeat of his enemies and so on. You know, they had... They had their priestly system, they had the tabernacle, the temple, they had the sacrificial system, and so on. They had the prophecies about a coming Messiah, but they never guessed. They never could have known exactly what God was planning. And so we have this great turn of events, this surprise. God becomes man. God becomes man. God the Son incarnates as man, Jesus Christ. And he lives a perfect life on this earth. But there's a tragedy even in the story of the incarnation. The tragedy is that despite his perfection and despite his righteousness, Jesus Christ would die. Jesus Christ, the God incarnate, would receive the death penalty upon himself for sins, uh, a, a conviction that was not truly his. He would die for this. But yet, even in here, we see another surprise. Like I said, the Jews had their sacrificial system. They knew that God was able to stay in covenant with them by atoning for their sins through the blood of substitutes, right? Because like I said, sin has to be dealt with, but yet God has covenant with people. How do you solve this problem? They had others dying in their place, shedding their blood in their place. This was the blood of sheep 
lambs, bulls, birds, and so on, and all the, the, the regulations that came along with that. They had the substitutionary, substitutionary blood that would come through them. But they had to do it every year. There were ongoing rituals and ongoing ceremonies they had to do because, we all know, the blood of a lamb cannot replace the blood of a person. If we take, take Ted Bundy, say they caught him after all of his horrific crimes, and then they say, well, let's go grab a bull, and we will kill that bull instead. No one would have seen that as justice because the life of a bull or a sheep cannot replace the, the life and the blood of a man. They cannot atone for that. Therefore, the sacrificial system and all that was involved was temporary. It was temporary, and it was pointing forward to something beyond itself, a day whenever God would finally wash away the sins with acceptable blood. That would be the blood of Jesus. Who could have guessed it? God became man. No one saw that coming. And then God dealt with our sin. He atoned for our sin, not by shedding our blood and not by just the blood of more animals, but by the blood of his son who had become incarnate. You see, Jesus had to become incarnate to save us. Uh, number one, so he could live out as a man perfect righteousness. That was absolutely necessary. The, the blood of the sacrifice had to be perfect blood. He had to live out absolute righteousness and obedience to the Father. But also, because he had to be breakable. He had to be vulnerable. He had to be the kind of being that could bleed and suffer. So Jesus becomes man so that he might die, so that he might bleed on the cross in the place of sinners. Who could have seen it coming? And then the next, the, the last part of the story, the climax, once again, no one could have guessed that three days later, God the Father would raise Jesus from the dead, accepting his payment for our sins by, uh, by overturning death and laying down death, laying down the punishment for our sins and, and swallowing up the wrath of God and leaving it in his grave, raising him up in new life. Even though Jesus told his disciples what was going to happen, if you go back and you read the stories, read all four Gospels, read the book of Acts, no one saw that coming. No one expected it. Even whenever they discovered the empty tomb uh, three days later. You remember the story? You can read about it in John 20. Uh, whenever they go and they discover the empty tomb, they didn't go because they were expecting an empty tomb. <laughs> they didn't go because they said, hey, you remember what Jesus said? Let's go see him raised from the dead. They went to go and to do, uh, and to do some ceremonial actions with the corpse. No one expected it. The disciples were huddled together afraid in the upper room because they thought they were next. They were going to be captured by the Romans and executed because Jesus was. That's what usually happened. They thought they were next. They were terrified. They weren't sitting around waiting saying, he's going to rise. He's going to rise. He's coming back. They thought it was over. And Jesus appears among them. Go read the book of Acts. Anytime Peter or Paul or, or Philip preached the gospel, they received the most pushback at this, that Jesus rose from the dead. No one expected it. No one was ready to believe it. You see, the Jews, 
they did have this belief in resurrection, but it was different. They believed, and you can see examples of this if you go read Acts as well. They, they believed that resurrection would happen to all of God's people at the end of history, whenever God finally establishes kingdom once and for all. Uh, we might call it the consummation of his kingdom. They thought, they, they believed in resurrection, so they, saw, they said, yes, that's going to happen. They had that belief. You, you can see this in uh, the book of John, whenever Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And he tells uh, Lazarus' sister that you will see him again. And she says, yes, I know. And you, you go back and read what she says. She says, yes, I know that I will see him on the last day. Right? So they believed in resurrection on the last day, but they did not believe in one man being raised to new eternal life in the middle of history, which is what happened to Jesus. You might say, well, they had Lazarus, right? He was raised from the dead. You might look at some other examples of people who are raised from the dead and say, well, what about them? Well, but Lazarus died again. The, all the other examples, the, the young girl that Jesus raised from the dead, alas, she would die again. All the examples in the Old Testament, those people, they would die again. But the life to which Jesus was raised in, he would never taste death again. No one expected that. That God the Father would see the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ and say, the debt is paid in full. And he would accept that work by raising Jesus Christ from the dead into a life, the, the new life that we are looking forward to in heaven. Whenever we think about that life that we are going to be resurrected to in heaven, that is life everlasting without end, that is perfect, that, that comes with new bodies and so on, it is that life that Jesus was resurrected into. This is the comedy the happy ending to the story through an unexpected turn of events that no one could have seen coming. And what does it all mean? Whenever you bring it all together, it means that our sins are once and forever washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. His blood is acceptable. He is the lamb. He is the true lamb once and for all. That all that, that, like I said, that sacrificial system that stood before, that had all of its rules and regulations you can read about in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, all of that, it all stood as pointers forward to him. It was temporary. It was only meant to last for a short period of time until he would come and he would be the ultimate lamb who could die substitutionarily to take away our sin. Like I said, we had a debt that stood before God the Father because of our sin that we never could have paid. But Jesus took that debt upon himself, and he paid it in his death. And that debt is paid in full. I love what, uh, what one preacher says, that the resurrection is, is God's gigantic rubber stamp across history saying, paid in full. The Father has received the Son's work and is now ready to apply it to you and I. The great happy ending to the story is a happy ending that can be for you and me. It can be for us. It is not just, uh, it's not just something that you can, you can hear about and say, good for them. It is a story that you can take part in. It is a story that can become your story. Your sins washed away forever. Your debt paid. 
and the righteousness of Jesus Christ, uh, the power of his resurrection work applied to your life. And the power of Jesus' resurrection now coming into your life and changing your life, rewriting your story so that your story, too, can have a happy ending. This is where uh, the fairy tale comes in. And by that, I don't mean a fake story, of course. What I mean by that is a story so fantastic we never could have guessed it. And a story that is so fantastic, it, it inspires us to live differently today. That's the power of really good fairy stories, right? You can, there's an excellent, famous essay by J.R.R. Tolkien called On Fairy Stories, where he talks about this, that's the power of, of great myths and stories, that they, they, through their fantastic uh, storylines and characters and so on, they inspire us to see the world in a different way, to see truths that we couldn't have seen otherwise, and then to live differently because of them. The resurrection, the gospel story, is such a story, yet it is also fact. This is what Tolkien said to Lewis as a part of Lewis's uh, conversion story. He told him that the gospel is myth become fact. It is the greatest fairy story that you ever could have conceived of, and yet you never would have guessed or written yourself, and yet it is true. It happened in history. You see, what I mean by that is this, our last point. The fairy tale is that by Jesus' work, we can join him in paradise one day, and we are given a living hope for the present. You see, so hope works in this way. Hope has a future vision, an end, or the Greek word would be telos, right? An end, a goal that we are all moving towards, that history is moving towards, and yet there are also realities that hope gives us for the present. The gospel tells us that because of Jesus' resurrection, because our sins are paid, like I said, we can one day join him in paradise. The resurrection that he experienced can one day be ours. This is what Peter was saying to those Christians in 1 Peter chapter 1 that we read. These were uh, Christians who were experiencing suffering and persecution by their neighbors because of their faith. And Peter says to them, you are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. For a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In the last time. He says, you rejoice in this, even though you suffer now, so that your sufferings may result in uh, your, your character and praise, glory, and honor to Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him yet, he says you love him, and so on. And then in verse 9 he says, because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Notice that Peter is talking about a salvation that is yet to come. Now, as I said, the gospel can change your life today. It can wash away your sin today. It can bring you into relationship with God today, and, and resurrection power can enter your life today. And yet Peter's talking about this salvation, right? It seems to be the same word, the same thing we're talking about, that's to come, that's going to be in the future that they're waiting for. Both are true. Your sins can be forgiven today. And yet, the full gift of what we received in the gospel and at Easter is still yet to be received. There is a salvation. Even oh, if you have tasted the sweetness of salvation today, just how wonderful is it, right? That your sins have been forgiven by God. It's all washed away, and you're in relationship with him now. But it gets even better. There is more salvation to come. 
That's what Peter's talking about. Because of Jesus' resurrection, we are looking forward to the day whenever we will experience a resurrection like his into new bodies, into a new heaven and earth where sin, death, and suffering have been removed once and for all. Whereas it talks about in the book of Revelation, every tear is wiped away and we live in perfect eternal life with God. In other words, the story being brought back to where God had intended it would be at the beginning. We, are, we will be one day brought back into a place that is a perfect home with perfect unity and harmony between us and the Father to live for all eternity. Because of Jesus' death and his resurrection. His resurrection is, is the key, the cornerstone that holds that hope together. Because Jesus was, was not left in the grave, but risen from the dead, we are promised that we will experience a resurrection like his. It is that fact that we look to, that we stake our lives upon to say, I know that it is true. Paul described Jesus' resurrection as the first fruits of what is to come. What he means by that is, uh, think of a harvest. You have a harvest that, uh, that, it, that grows up from plants, and you begin to harvest one part of the fruits, but there's a lot more to come, right? Or maybe, maybe some of the fruit comes up a little early, and that is harvested, but you know there are still fields and fields of harvest to come. That's what Paul means. He says Jesus' resurrection is the first fruit. It's the beginning of a harvest, but there's so much more to come. What Jesus experienced will be our experience. It will be given to us. We will, that will be our story too. Peter says this resurrection that proves to us, that gives us this hope of that salvation that is to come. He says it is a living hope. What does, that, what does it mean to have a living hope? There's a scholar named N.T. Wright, and I think, I think he nails this one really well. He says, hope is what you get when you suddenly realize that a different worldview is possible. A worldview in which the rich, the powerful, and the unscrupulous do not, after all, have the last word. The same worldview shift that is demanded by the resurrection of Jesus is the shift that will enable us to transform the world. I think that whenever Peter talks about we are given a living hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is he means a hope that is real and that does something. You know, because I can say, I hope the Saints win the Super Bowl next year. And we all know that's, that's a far-reaching hope, right? There's not a lot of fact behind that. But the kind of hope that we talk about in the gospel is hope that is based upon fact, right? Because if Jesus rose from the dead, we know it's true. And it is based upon, like I said, um, if I hope the Saints win the Super Bowl next year, I'm basing that on right, no good knowledge. But our hope in the resurrection of Christ is based upon knowledge. It is not just a wish. It is based upon faith. That is what Peter is, is, is talking about in verse 8 when he says, Though you, you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him, and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy. You see, he's saying there is a type of knowledge 
that comes apart from just seeing. We always assume that you can only truly know things that you see with your eyes. But faith is a kind of knowledge that doesn't depend on sight. It's not wishful thinking. It's not just um, uh, choosing to say something without good reason. It's a type of knowledge that we have that enables us to know Christ, to love him, and rejoice in him. And based upon the fact of his resurrection, our true knowledge of Jesus Christ, we have hope. We have hope that's made of something, hope that has substance to it, that's weighty. And hope that, as that quote from Wright said a little while before, enables us to transform the world. How? I'm going to talk about this, and then we'll be done. A living hope. First, it transforms us. First, it changes you. Like I said, the gospel is both now and not yet. There, we have received uh, the gospel and salvation now, and uh, yet there are some to be waiting for. But one of the things that we receive now is we do receive the beginning of resurrection power in our hearts that brings about a new heart, a new spirit, and so on. Uh, the love of God is poured into our heart, and we finally come to believe something that without it we never could have believed before. And that is this, that my story can change. The gospel gives you the hope that your story can change. That what has been true about you, that what maybe is even true about you today, does not have to be true about you tomorrow. The way that your life has gone up until this point today does not have to be how your life goes in, into the future. It changes your story. Because so often we start to live with a story, with a script, that has either been given to us by the world, been given to us by family, uh, or by uh, coworkers, or maybe even been told by ourselves. Because, oh, I've done this in the past, and I've done this, and I've experienced this failure, and I've experienced that failure, and this setback, and that obstacle, that that's how it's always going to be. And as miserable as I've been, I will always be this miserable, and that is my story. But the gospel, the tragedy, comedy, and resurrection, it tells us that there is another story that is possible for you, that your past does not determine your future, but if, you're, if you belong to Jesus Christ, then he can determine your future, and he can change your story. He can rewrite your script. It is now no longer dependent on you or what happens to you or what people say about you. It is determined by what Jesus has done. Your story can change. How liberating is that? How transforming is that? That's the hope that N.T. Wright was talking about. The, 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 uh, the good news that things can be different. Things can change. It is actually possible. And it's possible as a gift from God. He's saying, I can change your story. He's saying, you're right. You have messed things up. And if it were left up to you, you continue to mess things up. But based upon what, God, what Jesus has done through God's power and through resurrection power, it can change. And then grounded in this resurrection power then and knowing that our stories can change, we also recognize this. It changes the story that we believe about the world around us. Because what it tells us is this, is that uh, our world is not going to, uh, I can't remember who originally said this, but that, uh, that history 
is a story that will uh, end in a, with a bang and a whimper. I can't remember who said that. But the gospel changes it. And it says, no, the world is not going to end with a bang and a whimper. It will end with a wedding celebration. It will end with the coronation of a king. It will end with a great celebration, a feast around a table. A table that is headed up by our lamb that died for us. And now, if you believe that that is actually the end of the story for our world, then it motivates you to change the way that you live now and to be an agent of transformation in the now, recognizing that the resurrection power that has come into your life and has changed you can flow out from you to change the world around you. The resurrection, guys, I'm not overstating this, and I'm not speaking hyperbolically, can literally change your life. It can change your circumstances. It can change your relationships. It can bring healing. It can bring wholeness. It can bring new life where there was death. It can bring resolution where there was conflict. The resurrection is not just something that can happen in your soul, but it can flow out and change your life. When you receive that gift from God and then return that love, uh, that, that love that you have received from the Father back to the Father by living out the new way of life that he has given you. And then that brings transformation in the world around you. And we recognize that we're not alone, but we do it together as Christians united in the Holy Spirit, as the body of Christ, as citizens of a kingdom, where if we are all working together towards that same goal, that we might not just see transformation in our hearts, in our households, or in our churches, but also in society. We're in the midst of all kinds of culture wars. We're in the midst of all kinds of conflicts in our society today, some of which are political, some of which are um, in, the, in, in the culture, some of which are violent, and we see bloodshed. Many have looked around, especially those who are more of a conservative bent, and said, this is the end. <laughs> We're done for. It's just going to keep getting worse. It is dark. And certain historical precedents tell us it doesn't look good. But the gospel tells us that the end doesn't have to be a tragedy. The gospel gives us hope. We can look at history as well and see how the gospel went into some dark situations and it changed things. It made a difference whenever ordinary men and women with resurrection power inside of them started to live out that living hope. This is what it means for us to have a living hope that changes our story, that changes our lives, and that can, if we all together, obeying Christ, can change society. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this living hope. We thank you that though our story should have ended in tragedy, that you did the unexpected, that you incarnated to become man, that you died on the cross for our sin, and that you rose from the grave, victorious, laying sin and death down in your grave. And Lord, also for those who receive this gift of salvation, we know that our sin has been washed away. Our debt has been paid. Our death has been laid down in Jesus' tomb. 
and that now our story can be different. It doesn't have to be determined by our actions in our past or what people say or what people believe about us, but that our story can now be determined by you, that our tragedy can turn and have a happy ending, and that the tragedies that we see in the world around us, likewise, through the power of your gospel, can have a happy ending. Lord, more than anything else today, well, number one, would you grant those who have not yet believed and surrendered their life to you that belief, grant them repentance and faith, so that they may come into relationship with you and have their story changed. And for those of us who have already been walking with you, Lord, more than anything else today, would you grant us even just a mustard seed size faith that is audacious enough to hope for the transformation of society and to live out a life that seeks that end. Seeing those who are lost be found, seeing rebellion, uh, rebels turned into citizens in the kingdom and orphans into sons and daughters. And along with it coming healing, reconciliation, and wholeness. We pray these things in the work of, uh, in the name of our Savior who has risen for us and now reigns as King, Jesus Christ. Amen.